Good morning, my name's Leanne. Our second Bible reading today is from the book of Genesis, chapter 45, verses 1 to 4. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants, and he cried out, Have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with Joseph when he made himself known to his brothers. And he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him, and Pharaoh's household heard about it. Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? But his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there has been famine in the land, and for the next five years there will be no ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. He made me father to Pharaoh, lord of his entire household and ruler of all Egypt, now hurry back to my father and say to him, this is what your son Joseph says. God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, don't delay. You shall live in the region of Goshen and be near me, you, your children and grandchildren, your flocks and herds and all you have. I will provide for you there because five years of famine are still to come. Otherwise, you and your household and all who belong to you will become destitute. You can see for yourselves, and so can my brother Benjamin, that it is really I who am speaking to you. Tell my father about all the honour accorded me in Egypt and about everything you have seen, and bring my father down here quickly. Then he threw his arms around his brother Benjamin and wept, and Benjamin embraced him, weeping. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Leanne. We do have four chapters to cover today. Now, if you're a bit concerned, this is going to be four times as long. Um, let's, let, we can pray that that won't be the case. In fact, I can guarantee it won't be the case. Uh, but if you do want to follow along, it will be um, because it's a long passage, you'll find the outline on the inside of the bulletin helpful just to follow along, so you might like to use that. Well, let's uh, pray once again. Gracious Heavenly Father, just as you ruled and reigned over Joseph's life, we know that you continue to rule and reign today. Help us, Lord, to trust you more deeply as we reflect on this story and how you always work to bring about your good purposes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, quite a number of decades ago, there was a, quite a famous movie by the name of Forrest Gump. Anyone remember that? Forrest Gump, there's a guy by the name of Forrest Gump, and he, he, he said this wonderful quote, which I think is quite true of life. Do you remember this one? Mama always said, life was like a box of chocolates. You never know what you're going to get. Heard of that? There's some truth to it, isn't there? I mean, you do not really know. We don't know what we are going to get in life. We don't really know what our lot in life will look like. I mean, we all may have plans to go to that party, and then we get sick. Or we may have had plans for holidays, but then it gets cancelled. Or some of us may have had other career plans, but that was changed 
out of our control. Some of us hope and plan to have a healthy life, but then we seem to struggle with health issues, physically and mentally. We may hope always in life to get married, but have never found the right person, or that person has not come yet. Some even hope to have children one day, but yet that has not happened yet as well. You see, we all have plans. We all have our dreams, but just like what Forrest Gump said, you never know what you're going to get. But you see, what Forrest Gump said does not go far enough. Because though what he said is somewhat true, we don't know, but God knows. God knows. I mean, in Proverbs, we read this. Many are the plans in a person's heart, but it is the Lord's purpose that prevails. That has been the overarching theme of this whole series. We have our dreams, we have our plans, but it is always God's plan that will prevail. And that certainly was the case for Joseph's life. I mean, his life was all up and down, up and down. In fact, I tried to, you know, I've got this engineering mind and I wanted to plot out his life. And so I put it on a graph. I call this graph Joseph's up and downs. And I put it to scale. Joseph, starting out in Canaan, was doing okay. And then he got his coat, so life was going well. But did he know whether life was going to go up or down from that moment? Well, he didn't know, but God did, because what happened? Well, he was sold by his brothers as a slave. Now, when he's down in the pits, you, you must be thinking, well, from Joseph's perspective, what next? He could not see, but God saw. And then what happened? Well, he rose to the top of Potiphar's house. Life was going well. And he thought, well, this is it. This is life. I'm doing well. But he had no idea, did he? Because what happened next? Well, he was imprisoned, falsely accused by Potiphar's wife. But then when he was in prison, he thought, well, what next? Is it going to be good or is it going to be bad? Well, he had no idea that he was going to meet the cupbearer and baker, interpreted the dreams. Things were going well again. This was maybe his chance to get out. His life's up and down. And then what happened then? Well, you hope that, well, that was his ticket out. But no, God made him wait another two years, up and down. And then after the two years' wait, he finally met Pharaoh and was made prime minister. I mean, that was Joseph's life. You look at that, and perhaps as we reflect on our own lives, it's a little bit like that, you know, up and down. We just could not see what was around the corner, what God had in mind. But yet what we could see in Joseph's story and perhaps even as we reflect on our story so far, God orchestrated all the steps, ordained the path to bring about his good purpose. And so even now when Joseph's prime minister, he still had no idea what was to lie ahead. He was already on top of the world. I mean, how could it get any better for Joseph? But yet in God's mind, in our passage today, the best was yet to come. And so our passage, we'll go through the story quite quickly. And we'll go through our story reflecting on the different characters. On, on the brothers first, and then Jacob, and then Judah, and then Joseph. So first, the brothers. The passage opens with the scene now shifting from Joseph to Jacob and his sons back in Canaan. The famine has started. 
food was running short. And so it was now about 20 years after the brothers brutally sold off their younger brother Joseph off to slavery. About 20 years already. I mean, even that should bring to mind. We hope God, we always want God, bring it now. Fix my problems now. But yet, you see, we read the story of Joseph in only a few chapters. 20 years already. And so it seems like at this point, Jacob may have not yet learnt of what really took place. And so you can imagine for this father or the brothers just getting on with life, getting on with business as though nothing had happened. But yet they were all living with this big black secret kept hidden from their father. And, and that couldn't have been easy. But well, now 20 years have passed. And what we start to see in chapter 42 is that God starts to awaken the conscience of the brothers. He pricks and he prods at their conscience to wake them up to what they did. Because when the famine started, what did Jacob say? And I think this is the first instant where the brothers' conscience were, in a sense, pricked by God. Look at verse 1. Verse 1. Jacob said, Why do you keep looking at each other? Which is quite telling, isn't it? The brothers, they're grown men now. Why are you looking at each other? I mean, take some initiative here. Jacob goes on, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down, down there and buy some for us so that we may live and not die. Now, I wonder whether you notice something from what Jacob just said there. It's perhaps very subtle. But I wonder whether it's the beginning of the pricking of their conscience. I mean, if you were one of these brothers, remembering what you did 20 years ago, to hear your dad now mention the word Egypt, your heart would have just sank. Wasn't that where we sent our brother to? Well, we move on. The ten brothers, they do as Jacob had asked. They head off to Egypt. They leave Benjamin behind because Jacob wants him home. And when they get to Egypt, who did they meet? Well, they didn't know yet, but the man ruling the land was their own brother Joseph. And what did they do? Well, they fulfilled that dream of Joseph some 20 years earlier. Remember that dream? When, when, when the things, the stars would bow down, well, that was exactly what happened. They bowed down to Joseph. Now, coming to Egypt, they may have thought, well, this is going to be an easy trip. We just go there, pay our money, buy the grain, and come home. But God had other plans. You see, it was no accident that they ended up bowing before Joseph. And God was using that situation to, to awaken their conscience, to prick at it. Their past sins, the past sins that they would have liked to have forgotten, was like this dark cloud coming back upon them to haunt them. I mean, do you notice that? Joseph accused them as spies, imprisoned them, and demanded that they return and bring back Benjamin. Now, you can understand why Joseph made such a demand. Because why didn't Joseph, at that moment, recognizing that they were his brothers who were bowing down to him, why didn't he say right up, I'm your brother? Why did he not do that? Well, you see, at this point, Joseph would have had no idea whatsoever what we know as readers. It's 20 years since he left home. He would have had no idea whatsoever whether these brothers 
were as ruthless as they once were towards him. And whether they did to Benjamin what they did to him, he would have no idea whether Benjamin was still alive. And so he asked him, bring back Benjamin. But God was using this situation to awaken their conscience, to unsettle their peace. Their past sins could not be avoided any longer. Look at verse 21. The brother said, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come upon us. And in verse 22, Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an account for his blood. Now I want you to reflect on that for a moment. Don't you find that fascinating? They had no idea that the man they were bound before was Joseph. Why did that come to mind? Why did what they did 20 years ago come back to mind? Well, I think what was happening was that it was haunting them because God was using it to prick at their conscience, to awaken their guilt, reminding them that you cannot just forget the sins of your life. They will come back. It may take a while, it may take 20 years, but it will come back to haunt you. And if you think about it, isn't that how God often works? And sometimes we, we, we feel in our conscience that it's been pricked, it's just unsettled, there's no peace, we're uncomfortable, and that maybe may not always be. I mean, we feel guilty about all sorts of things, but it may be God pricking at our conscience, bringing to mind, you know what, you were wrong there. You, you made a mistake. You shouldn't have said that. You shouldn't have done that. And your guilt is right. You see, when our conscience is pricked and we, we do feel guilty and our conscience is unsettled, it's always best to ask why as opposed to just dismiss it quickly. In fact, I, I, I'm sure you have as well. I felt on several occasions myself needing to call up a brother or sister because I said something I shouldn't and I caught up and said, I'm sorry. You know that when I said that? It was not right. It was out of line. Because if we don't do that, what happens to our heart? It gets, it gets harder. It gets hardened. Or well, here for the brothers. Something was stirring inside of them. But yet God did not leave them at that. He prodded, he prodded at them once again. He prodded at them once again. And after they went home, they found the silver in their bags. Now, do you notice what they said? Again, it's quite fascinating. Verse 28, they said, What is this that God has done to us? You see, for the very first time since the beginning of the story of Joseph, the brothers made their first mention of God. Before that, they did not talk about God at all. They're becoming once again aware that there is a God above, that God cannot be dismissed or ignored. I mean, we might try living our lives without God or without any thought of God, but eventually something will happen. And just like the brothers, oh God, what are you doing to me? You see, what God was doing here was something within their hearts. Now, they don't see it just yet. But God was directing things, preparing them for what was going to take place. Now that's the brothers. Now Jacob. Well, next we see Jacob's faith finally provoked. Because 
didn't we expect far more from Jacob at this point? I mean, what type of father was he? He showed favorites. He treated his son not equally and he had favoritism for one over the others. It wasn't good. But wasn't this the man of faith? Wasn't Jacob the one who wrestled with God all night? But yet so far in this story, we have to question, well, where is this man of faith? He didn't show any sign of faith at all. Because if anything, he showed favorites. He, he spiraled down in grief and despair when he learned of what happened to Joseph. And he never recovered. No expression of faith in God whatsoever. But now instead, he holds on to Benjamin, his youngest son, with an unhealthy fear. And so when Reuben, the oldest, tried to convince Jacob, well, let us go back, let us bring Benjamin so that we can get more food. Well, Reuben, he was a bit silly in the sense of offering his own sons as collateral. Quite foolish of him. But how did Jacob respond? Look now at chapter 42, verse 38. He said, My son will not go down there with you. His brother is dead, and he's the only one left. If harm comes to him... On the journey you are taking, you will bring my grey head down to the grave in sorrow. You see, Jacob, the man of faith, was showing no faith at all. He was holding on to Benjamin with an unhealthy fear. And so you have to ask, well, what about his other son, Simeon, who was still in prison? He didn't show much concern at all for his second son. Where is the man of faith who wrestled with God? But then we get a hint. God was provoking his faith in chapter 43. It's subtle, but it's there. Because how did he respond now when Judah makes the same request to bring Benjamin? Well, finally we see some inkling of faith. Look at verses 13 and 14. Jacob responds, Take your brother also and go back to the man at once. And may God Almighty grant you mercy before the man so that he will let your other brother and Benjamin come back with you. As for me, if I'm bereaved, I am bereaved. Now you see, just like the brothers, after so many chapters, this was the first time the word God came from the lips of Jacob. He rested in the mercy of God. Just like his sons, recognizing that there is God Almighty above, he recognized now that his future, the future of Benjamin, the life of Benjamin, was in the hands of God. Whatever happens, I cannot hold on to him. I cannot make sure that I'm in complete control. But it is God. His life is in the hands of God, and he says in the end, I rest in the mercy of God. And do you notice how he ends what he said just then? He said, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. It sounds a little bit like the story of Esther. Remember that when she entered into the king's presence? If I die, I die. It's a final recognition that whatever happens, even my life is in the hands of God. And that is the right attitude of all believers, isn't it? Whatever happens, it is in the hands of God. I rest in the mercy of Almighty God. And so finally we get an inkling that this man who wrestled with God, this man of faith, was showing some signs of faith in God. Something was happening in his family. The brother's conscience was being awakened. The father's faith was being provoked. And it was God directing the course of events. It was going somewhere. Well, next we see 
how God worked in one of the sons in Judah's life, redeeming him from his ways, causing such transformation and a change in heart that only God can bring about. And so after returning to Joseph with Benjamin, Joseph throwing a lavish feast for all his brothers, when all seemed to go so well, sacks all packed and filled with food, ready to return home, Joseph had one more test. And what was that? He placed his silver cup in not just any brother's sack, but in Benjamin's sack. It's sort of like planting the evidence. Now, why did Joseph do that? Well, you see, he wanted to test and to see whether there was any change in the hearts of the brothers, whether they showed any repentance whatsoever, whether they still hated Benjamin. I mean, they brought him along, but that did not show whether they loved him or cared for him, or whether they will throw him under the bus. Now, keep in mind, this was a dysfunctional band of brothers. Just remember what they did. They've committed murder. Reuben's committed incest. Judah sexually immoral. All of them deceitful. What could bring about a change in such ugly characters? Well, the story goes on. The steward finds the cup in Benjamin's sack. Now, what would you expect to have happened? What do you expect the brothers to do at this point? What a fool you are, Benjamin. Why did you steal? You shouldn't have done that. Well, Stuart, take Benjamin. Let him be your slave. But instead, what do we notice? A change of heart that only God could bring about. They tore their clothes and went back to the city. And we start to see what God was doing behind the scenes. And what God was doing within their hearts, transforming and redeeming Judah's way. He once had no moral compass at all, but look at his change now. Because what did he say? He spoke as the leader amongst the brothers, and notice Judah did not blame anyone. Verse, verse 16, chapter 44 now. God has uncovered your servant's guilt. He didn't blame anyone. And also notice how he willingly lays down his own life for Benjamin's freedom. He gives up his life as a ransom, as a substitute. In verse 33, Please let your servant remain as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. Remember what happened 20 years ago. It was Judah's voice that meant that Joseph was sold off as a slave. He was the leading voice. Now he's the lone voice offering himself for Benjamin's freedom. That is a transformation of heart that only God could bring about. And so you can see where this story is heading. Things were stirring amongst the brothers, amongst the father, amongst Judah. And now finally we get to Joseph. What did Joseph do? He showed gracious forgiveness to his brothers he could not contain it any longer he sends out the servants and the slaves now that could be just because he didn't want his servants to see their leader crying and weeping but most likely it's because it's how you deal with your brother's sin you don't make it public you do it deal with it privately it's not for anyone else to know but here we see genuine forgiveness here we see 
not forgetting the past, not necessarily forgetting the past, but at least forgetting the pain of the past. That's forgiveness. The pain Joseph experienced to be so hated by his brothers, to be so abused and sold, it would not have been easy. But yet he wasn't flippant about his forgiveness. I forgive you, but let's not talk about it and stay away from it. Not like that at all. Instead, what did he say? Come close to me. We see here a beautiful picture of forgiveness and reconciliation. Don't be afraid. Come close to me. And they all wept together. They kissed. He kissed his brothers. And perhaps what we see there is one of the most emotional scenes in the Bible. A beautiful picture of reconciliation. A family that has been torn apart for 22 years now. Not torn apart merely by distance because they drifted away, but torn apart by wickedness and evil. But to see this family back again together, that is the kindness of God. And so Joseph, out of the graciousness of his own heart, he embraced them, he forgave them. And he didn't have to do it, but he did. And the brothers, what did they bring to the table? What did they offer? Nothing. They were mere recipients of that grace. They did not deserve it one bit. Recipients of Joseph's love, of Pharaoh's blessings, of God's blessings. They were like beggars who received so much. And so Joseph here in this story shows gracious, undeserved forgiveness to his brothers. But now we have to ask, why was Joseph able to do that? Was it merely because he was a nice and gracious and a kind guy? You know, they're the type of people who would forgive because he's so gracious. Well, no. Because in the kindness of God, he was able to do that because he was able to see God's bigger plan. Do you notice how many times he pointed out the fault of his brothers when they were reconciled? How many times he pointed out their sin? He only pointed out once. It needed to be said. It couldn't be avoided, but he only said it once. Look now at chapter 45, verse 4. I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. The only time he reminded them of their fault. You see, he didn't dwell on their sins. We see here something of genuine forgiveness. You did wrong, we acknowledge it, but he didn't say, don't you remember how much you hurt me? Don't you remember how heartless you were? How I can't even believe you would do such a thing to your own brother. He didn't stand there and dwell on their fault. So he only mentioned that once. But do you notice how many times he acknowledged that this was God's plan all along? Four times. He saw that this was God's plan all along. Verse 5. Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. One time, second time, verse 7. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. Third time, verse 8. It was not you who sent me here, but God. And verse 9. God has made me Lord of all of Egypt. You see, Joseph was pointing out, you plan all of this, but God. But God but God, but God. Joseph could see how God had his plans all along, and God's plans are always best. 
You see, God's plan was not just for him to get rich and powerful for the sake of him, for the sake of it. You know, I feel sorry for you, Joseph. Let's give you something as a reward. Not at all. God's plan all along was the saving of this covenant family through whom one day the Savior would come. You see, God's plans are always best. And of course, the question is for us now, as we read this story, the question now for us is, do we believe it too? Do we believe it too that God's plans for us is always best? I mean, the same God who was sovereign over Joseph's story is the same God who is sovereign today over your story and my story. And do you know what that calls for? If it is the same God who rules and reigns and is in complete control, what does that call for in terms of our response? Well, what that calls for is faithfulness in life. You see, our lives may be like the brothers. It is up and down. We may have caused harm. We may have sinned in big ways. It may be like Joseph's life, up and down. And even when we feel like life is going well, God has his greater plan. We just don't see it yet. I mean, if you look at that plot again, remember that one? When Joseph was made prime minister, he thought, you know, this is it. I'm the top of the world. But he did not see that even at that point, God had a better plan for him, and that was reconciliation with his brothers. God had more. And so as Joseph reflected on all his hardships, all that he experienced, he would have praised God for it, for all of it. And that's the life of a Christian. See, our life may be up and down. We just don't know what the next turn of events will be. Will it go down? Will it go up? But we can trust that God who is faithful, we can be faithful to him. Whatever season of life we are in at every point, we don't know what's around the corner, but we can trust that God does. I mean, even as I reflect on my life, I've lived in, I mean, I'm in the middle age category, you know, the midlife crisis category. Uh, some of you are older, some are younger, but as I reflect on my life and as you reflect on your own lives, I wonder whether you can see how God has worked in the good times. And in the bad times. And whatever time it was, we just could not see what was around the corner. But God was working. God was bringing about his purposes. As I look back on my life, I I could see now why I studied engineering. It wasn't merely to become an engineer. I could see how in the kindness of God, he gave me good Christian friends in the Christian Union who helped move us in the path of ministry. That was part of God's plan. I could not see it at the point. I thought, I just want to be an engineer. How God would use those people to direct me to where we are now. And even as I look back on the toughest seasons of my life, and there have been some, I could see how God now, in hindsight, used it for my good, for my humbling, for my dependence. And I wonder whether that is true for you too, as you reflect back. You know, the good times, the bad times, That was God, wasn't it? He was doing something for me. And so what this calls for, this passage, it calls for faithfulness because God is faithful. And so what's your life like at the moment? Up, down, good season, bad season. This past week, in fact, I've had quite a few pastoral conversations with those who are in in a bad season of life. 
in a rut. But the encouragement is faithfulness now because you don't know what's going to happen next. We can be faithful because God is faithful. But I think there's another point to this passage that I think is important for us to know and for us to see. You see, part of the plan for God, of God, for the people, was the need for reconciliation. You see, the story could have ended very differently. God could have preserved his covenant people in so many other ways where it meant Joseph did not reconnect with his brothers at all. God could have preserved his family in some, in numerous other ways. He could have, Jacob could have sent slaves instead of the sons. God could have moved, moved the events so that they would end up in Egypt and, and had enough without Joseph on the scene. In fact, God could have ordained it so that the famine didn't happen at all. God could have done all of that. But you see here in the master plan of God, with all the pieces coming together, Joseph as prime minister, the policies he put in place, the famine, the brother's journey, all coming together so that they might be reconciled. No accident in God's plan. And that's because our God is a relational God. Relationship is important to God and relationship amongst people is important to God. And what God desires from his people is always peace and harmony and reconciliation when necessary. Which means sins must be confessed. Repentance must be genuine. Forgiveness must be graciously offered. Now I wonder if you know of anyone in your circles, friends or family, where there is no forgiveness and it's just heartbreaking to hear or even experience if that is you. I know of siblings who would not be willing to forgive each other after so many decades. That's terrible, isn't it? I've heard of a, a set of parents who would not reconcile with their son, and it's been quite a long time. And so they miss out on any relationship with the grandchildren, do not know their names at all. I mean, Christians who claim the forgiveness of God but are unwilling to forgive each other. That just dishonors God who has forgiven us. But you see, for Joseph and his brothers here, God's plan was not just for them to survive, but to be reconciled. And the best was yet to come. Not just to become prime minister, but to be reconciled. And that may be something for us all to take to heart this morning. You see, if there is a relationship in your circles, a relationship in your life where you are unwilling to say sorry or you're unwilling to forgive. In a sense, in the eyes of God, that cannot be on. We cannot claim the forgiveness of God and unwilling to forgive ourselves. What God's desire is, by his grace, we forgive, we apologize, we reconcile. That is God's desire. Now, finally, the story of Joseph is still incomplete. Because the best is yet to come. You see, this story is not just a story to make us feel good, to help us learn a bit about God, but this story also points forward to fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Because just as how Judah was willing to ransom his own life for his brother's freedom, Judah's greatest son, Jesus Christ, ransomed his life, gave it up, laid it down for all humankind. 
And just as Joseph so graciously went above and beyond in forgiving his undeserving brothers, I mean, that was costly for Joseph to do, lavishing on them the blessings of Egypt, blessings after blessings. So Jesus Christ, in a far greater way, in his death and resurrection, bore the pain of forgiveness so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be reconciled back to God, so that we can have peace with God and say, God is my Father. You see, we see here the colours of the gospel like we see every single week. And so again, if we have Jesus as our Lord and Saviour, we see where this story is pointing forward to. The invitation is there for all of us. Submit to him as king, if you haven't already. But he, if, if he is our Lord, whatever our life may look like at this moment, bad, good, in a rut, sad, whatever our life is like at this moment, we can trust that the best is yet to come. Up or down, the end, the end point, will be glory in heaven in the presence of our Saviour. You see, even for Joseph, for him, even after reconciliation, you think, that's it, he's reached the top of life. Not at all. The best for him was still yet to come. You see, you know that plot again? It was going to be heaven for him. It gets even better than all he experienced on earth, and that is also true for us who trust in Jesus. And I'll finish with this. Corey Ten Boon. She spent years in Nazi prison camp. She helped save many Jews during her life. She said this, No pit is so deep that he is not deeper still. With Jesus, in, even in our darkest moments, the best remains, and the best, the very best, is yet to be. And isn't that true for us too? Life up and down, but in the end, where will it be? It may be cancer. It may be broken relationships. It may be despair. It may be a sense of hopelessness, but where will it be in the end? It will be in the glory of heaven, in the presence of our Saviour. That's where we'll be. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you, Lord, that you are indeed sovereign. We have our dreams and our plans, but your plans, and we do thank you, Lord, that it is your plans and not our plans that will prevail. And we do thank you, Lord, that the best is yet to come. We do long for that day when Jesus will return. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.